Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 7. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the kafala system. And with us today is Adib Chaudhary. Adib Chaudhary is a photojournalist and writer who's been all around the world. His work focuses on human rights, migration, identity, and so much more. And in the last two years, he's been based in Beirut. So it's really cool to have him on and to talk about this. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It's an important one, and I think people really need to know about what's going on in that side of the world. So yeah, let's get this started. Here we go. What attracted you to Lebanon? Oof, I've always been interested in Middle Eastern politics, always, uh, I guess. Studying history, and my background is in international relations. Yeah. Always fascinated by, by the Middle East. I think I felt a kind of tie to it being... Uh, being a Muslim, I felt like, you know, Arabic, I associated it with the religion and this other identity that I had. Right. Uh, and then that kind of got me interested in, in the Middle East. And it's where everything that I was fascinated by politically was happening. You know, things like conflict, um, just mass migration as well. Yeah, it seemed to be where everything was happening. <laughs> so when did, when did you go to Lebanon for the first time? Uh, I went in, when did I move there? It was March of 2018. Yeah, it's two years ago. That was when I moved there. But the first visit that I made was uh, was actually in early January uh, 2017. I went there for a project that I had planned uh, during. So I was working like this policy job uh, with the United Nations. And like most people, I decide, you know, who have gone home for Christmas holiday, I decided to do this project in Lebanon. So I spent my Christmas break going to Lebanon uh yeah, during that holiday time. <laughs> you're, you're Bengali, right? I am, yeah. yeah. My parents are from Bangladesh. What's really cool is that it's very rare to see a Bengali perspective in Lebanon because Bengalis mm. don't have to go to Lebanon unless it's for work. And yeah. you're going in there and you speak the language and you have like a clear understanding. And I guess you can hear the voices. You can, you can better understand the voices of migrant workers there because you know the language and you understand the culture. And I guess the episode of this is going to be about the kafala system. So mm-hmm. for those who don't know what the kafala system is, can you explain what this structure is? Yeah, sure. So where to begin? <laughs> Basically, uh, the kafala, the term, comes from the word kafir, which is the term given to the employer. And it's basically a system of, of bondage. It's where um, someone will come in from abroad and work under the employer and their citizenship and all of their rights will be dependent on the employer who's hiring them. And so what that does is that means that it's the person, the employer who has the rights over the person, as opposed to, you know, what we're used to here in the West of the state being responsible for, you know, labor restrictions. And that's left a lot of room for exploitation. But essentially, it's, it's a term given to um, migrant workers to work as you know, domestic workers, um, but also other things such as cleaning the streets um, and restaurants and that type of thing. So basically, and the passports are given to the to the employer, right? Yeah, the passports. That's the thing. The passports are given to the employers or the recruitment agents um, at the airport, and then they then hand it over to the employer, the families that they they go to. So, so there's an agency that brings in uh, people from different countries, and then and then hires them out to employers. Mm -hmm. So you have, right, so that's the way it works. 
and usually these people are from South Asia, from Ethiopia, Nepal, and the Philippines, right? Yeah. So in in Lebanon specifically, the highest concentration is, I believe, it is um, it's between the top nationalities are Kenyans, Ethiopians, Sri Lankans, uh, and Bangladeshis as well, and and of course uh, Filipinos as well, Filipinos. Um, but the thing is, the numbers are completely disputed. If you look at the official terms, it's uh, the figure that's always sort of touted around is 250,000. Yeah. But if you talk to any journalist or any NGO worker, they'll immediately tell you that that's, you know, that's, that's a total farce. It's, it's at least double the amount, minimum, you know, double the amount, because many are undocumented. And so the figures are always skewed. What about, um, I know there's a big, Syrian refugee population in Lebanon. There's also a Palestinian refugee camp. Are they also exploited in that sense, or? Um, yes, they. Well, the thing is, they don't come really under the jurisdiction of of the kafala. They sort of have their own sort of system of of recruitment. And um, when you talk about the kafala system in Lebanon, it's for, it really tends to be regarding those those other countries. Um, but they are, of course, exploited very harshly. Um, but they sort of come under the sort of refugee temporary citizen kind of term and that's a whole complex issue in among in and of itself for instance palestinians they're they're only they can only do certain jobs within lebanon that they that have been specified for them so even if you're an educated palestinian you know you grew up in a refugee camp um and then you studied at university you managed to get in um you can only do certain specific jobs within lebanon itself so for instance you couldn't be you know, a top cardiologist in Lebanon if you're Palestinian origin. Really? I didn't know yeah. that. That's yeah. And I guess with the Kafala system, you uh, people when there's a group that's being exploited, there's a lot of racism and there's like this kind of cultural anti-blackness and anti-racism, uh, not anti-racism, racism hmm. towards uh, domestic workers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the core of it, it it is, it's racism. Um, this This idea that that uh, black people are sort of looked down upon. They're, they're really heavily sexualized. It's, it's ingrained in the culture. And if you look at sort of origins, the historical origins of racism in Lebanon, it's, it's very, very interesting to see sort of where the dynamics come into play. And, and that's rooted in kafala because people essentially view people coming in and, and cleaning their houses as just objects. Um, I mean, it's horrendous. You have catalogs, literal catalogs. If you go to a recruitment agent, Say if you wanted a domestic worker, you'd go to the agency, they'd provide you with a physical catalog of people with like a bunch of headshots that you would view as worthy of working in your house. And I mean, that's horrendous. That's what we're seeing in like, you know, in America during the times of slavery. And not only that, these days with Facebook, you have Facebook groups uh, where people are saying, oh, you know, here's, I don't know, like say Eliza, here's a picture of her. This is her skills. She can speak this language. She's great. She's worked in my house before. If you want her, like I can exchange her documents. You can buy her. This is her price. That's like literally a, the language that's being used. It's like a marketplace. It is totally workers. a marketplace. Yeah. That's and right. these people don't have a say if they want to switch jobs or not. They're stuck. Yeah. I mean, even if, even if they did have a say and said that they, you know, refuse to work for a family, I mean, say if you are the migrant worker, your passport is being held by your employer. So, and they're the one who's going to make money off, you know, sending your, your documents off to another family. 
And so it doesn't really matter if you say no, you're, you, yeah, <laughs> they're so the ones who've given you away. So let's say I'm a domestic worker and mm -hmm. I want to, and my, my boss is exploiting me and, and abusing me and yeah. I want to quit and I'm, I'm, I'm a hard worker, but I want to quit. What, what can I do? What are my options? Well, this is the problem. Your options are very limited. So, cause essentially what happens under the Kafala system, if you had been exploited and you want to, you want to leave, right? Right. Your first step is to, to get your documents back, to get your passport. Why? Because in Lebanon, if you don't have your, if you're a domestic worker and you don't have your passport and documents because it's, you know, dependent on the kafil, your, I want to say citizenship, but it's not really citizenship, but your right to be in Lebanon is revoked. You become immediately illegal if you don't have those documents. So if your employers refuse to give you your passport, then you've become an illegal person inside Lebanon. So what happens then is, and I've worked with many um, migrant workers who have run away, is that they leave their house, they escape, and then they're immediately illegal. And so what happens is often you have security checkpoints across Beirut and many cities in Lebanon. And if they pick you up and they, the first thing they'll do, if they spot that you're you know, South Asian or you're black is they'll often ask you immediately for your ID and your papers. And if you can't present them, then they have the right to take you to a detention center. And these detention centers are vast. People have disappeared in these NGOs who have been working on these issues have dealt with cases where people have disappeared for like months, you know, like no word about what's happened to them. They just know that their friends told the NGO that, you know, this person has run away. Can you check up on them? Here's their number. And then silence. No one is saying anything like the uh, vast black hole. These, these refugee camps, um, mm -hmm. How do you, how do these people disappear? I mean, isn't Kenton and Gio go into these places and be like, I have this person here, this name, is this in your database? Uh, you, do you mean the detention centers? The detention center, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, so they can do that. And that's how often you have to follow up on cases. Uh, NGO workers follow up on cases by doing exactly that. They have to go and search for the person. Um, but often, you know, there's so much bureaucracy involved in that. First of all, can you find which detention center they've been taken to? Right. Second of all, it's, it's navigating the mass, you know, maze that is the detention center. That's finding the person who's in charge of dealing with these migrant workers, finding the person who's got their documents. Well, you know, not their documents, but their ID or their name, and then trying to find them. And often, of course, if you're a migrant worker and you've run away, you're not going to give the authorities your real name. True. So that's how people get lost in this huge, system so if i want to quit and i want my password back couldn't i go to um some kind of government organization that i can complain to and be like i want to go home but this person isn't giving me my password back can you get him to give me my password back isn't there like kind of a legal process absolutely mm -hmm. yeah so that that's what happens often is the case and what happens then is the NGO would then contact the embassy. So say if it's a Bangladeshi worker, or no, let's say a Sri Lankan worker, mm -hmm. they'd contact the Sri Lankan embassy. And often what would happen is the Sri Lankan embassy would say, okay, well, you know, we need some kind of ID. Well, they don't obviously have their passport. So we need to issue them an emergency travel document. So it's then the responsibility of the migrant worker to have, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, have sent, taken a picture or scanned their documents beforehand themselves and provide the embassy with that information then in order to process the emergency travel documents. So the NGO acts as a sort of 
midpoint between getting the emergency travel documents from the embassy and then giving it to the migrant worker. Um, and in that case, the migrant worker is then dependent somehow miraculously of getting enough money to fly themselves back home. And often that's not the case. And so that's where NGOs come in. And they often, of course, they can't deal with every migrant worker and funding is limited and you sort of take it on a, they take it on a kind of case by case basis of who is considered more, you know, vulnerable mm -hmm. and needs to go home immediately. And What's... with the situation in Lebanon now, it's, it's a very tough place to be and it's, there's not enough money to take everyone back, but that's what all the NGOs have sort of decided to start doing. How did COVID and, and also the Beirut explosions impact migrant workers? Ooh, uh, it's impacted it in so many ways. So, of course, I mean, for listeners who don't know, uh, last you're sort of looking at a timeline between last October and now. Yeah, it's been exactly a year. So last October, the revolution started um, against... Right, right. The revolution started, yeah. Yeah, and, the, you know, these were protests across the entire country from north to the south of Lebanon. And what what happened after that was basically uh, Hariri had to step down because Saad Hariri, the, the prime minister of Lebanon, he had to step down. Um, you could argue that that's largely symbolic. And what happened then was, you know, they didn't have a prime minister until it was January 2020, yeah. where this guy took over, Hassan Diab. Um, and then the port explosion happened. Now, in between... January 2020 and the port explosion, which happened in, uh, it was in August, was Lebanon became the first country in the MENA region to reach high levels of hyperinflation. Right. You know, that meant like prices of bread completely skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. And of course, what that meant was that many employers who have domestic workers, uh, they simply couldn't afford to pay the domestic workers. So what did they do? They kicked them out of the house. And this is, of course, all in the context of COVID happening too. They also didn't want to pay for the domestic workers to have, you know, PCR tests, uh, COVID-19 tests. They couldn't afford that. So it was just easier simply just kick them out from the street. And so you started seeing huge numbers of migrant workers protesting outside their embassies, wanting to go home, sleeping on the streets for weeks, uh, Sudanese, Kenyans, Sri Lankans. And unfortunately, the, the Bangladeshi community, it's not, they were also protesting too, but it's often not picked up on because they're a very hard community to, to reach amongst the migrant domestic workers. They're the most vulnerable community out of all of them. Why? Um, so there's a few factors. One of them is simply down to language. Their English skills are very, very rudimentary, very, very basic. Many of them came from villages. And as well as that, their Arabic is pretty much non-existent as well. The Arabic you learn in Bangladesh is sort of, you know, you just learn it to read the Quran. Right. And it's like sort of learning like Shakespeare in English. You can't use it in, <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis. No one will understand what you mean. And so, yeah, the, the language is very bad. And as well as that, you've also got the fact that many of them came over illegally. So the, the recruitment agents from Bangladesh, many of them work illegally and they trans, you know, they transport people to Lebanon and they don't have the right documents and the Bangladesh community is very scared and very very wary when it's talking to journalists they often refuse outright refuse to like respond back to messages and any form of authority really what about you you can mm -hmm. I get you're Bengali so didn't you yeah. have an easier time to talk to them when you were there uh 
I, so the thing is, I, I really struggled at first. Um, the whole reason I got into covering migrant domestic workers was back when I went, as I said, in, uh, in January 2017, I was doing that project and it was literally, I was just eating at this restaurant alone and I saw this guy cleaning. And at that time I had no idea about kafala or at least how bad it was. I thought it was restrict limited to just Dubai. Um, and this guy, it was literally like a McDonald's or something. And this guy was cleaning and I could see from the corner of my eye, he was, he's Bangladeshi. And he kind of looked at me and he sort of, he registered something like maybe this guy's Bengali, but he wasn't quite sure. And he kind of made infrequent eye contact. And then eventually like I finished my food and I just chatted with him and I was like, Hey, are you from Bangladesh? And he, and his eyes sort of lit up. He's like, yeah, 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 I am. And he goes, you know, what are you doing here? I told him I'm a journalist. And he goes, oh, you have to hear about like, how Bangladeshis are treated here. And I go, why? What's, what's the deal? And he goes, listen, like I'm at work and there's so many other, like my, uh, the guy who's watching me, you know, if I end up talking to people for too long, I'm not doing my job, I'll get in trouble. If you really want to know, like come meet me on Saturday at this place called Daura. And this is where a lot of migrant workers sort of live and they relax in the weekend. And so I did, I went there on, a, it was like a Saturday, I think it was like 1130. I remember I met up with him and then he just explained the whole system and how bad it was. Um, so I really learned through him and he told me as well, he goes, listen, we, you know, we never see Bangladeshi journalists. You're in a good position to tell our story. He goes, people will trust you because you're not speaking English. You're speaking, you know, a common tongue and so much of that it just if you can speak the common tongue as someone else you know that their mother tongue they feel easier talking to you they can tell you really how they feel it doesn't get lost in translation which a lot of times it does when the stories are being told of migrant workers um and there's a reason for that it's because in journalism let's face it it's a very white male industry yes. a lot of these stories are being told especially the western press of migrant workers are being told by white male journalists what does that mean that means as I said, things get lost in translation. I mean, you don't have that element of the depth that they go into when they're telling me their ordeals is not the same depth that I've seen when I'm working with a translator and translating to say like another white journalist who's there. It gets so much gets lost in between the translation. And that's important um, to sort of explore and navigate in sort of the journalistic industry about how much gets lost in translation as opposed to, you know, just covering the story of these, these migrant workers. Most of these migrant workers are, are women, aren't they? Yeah. The vast majority are women. Yeah, that's right. Do, do they know do, when they're back home in Bangladesh, do they understand what they're getting into? Do their families know? So it's, it's, it's very hard to tell because a part of my project is wanting to go back is to get a grant, go back to Bangladesh and cover this from sort of the rural villages and cover the dynamics there. Because a lot of the dynamics there in rural, rural village life in Bangladesh impact how women get taken into the system um, and exploited by it. And a lot of that is to do with patriarchal values. So for instance, uh, to, well, to answer your question first, um, no, they don't know. They don't know the extent. And if they have heard stories, it's often overshadowed by the fact that they're promised these, you know, very glitzy kind of salaries. And everyone, at least the women that I spoke to, all of them said the same thing. They say that they thought, you know, just one year, 
they know it's harsh. They've heard the stories, but just one year, come on. And then I can come back and I'll have made enough money that I would have made in like two years or two and a half years, three years, maybe even working in Bangladesh. So you know what? I can stick through one year. Let's just do it. And then boom, they get swapped. They get sucked in. They leave behind their children and their husbands and they, and they go. Yeah, in some cases. But oftentimes what I've seen is so is that they get exploited. And by that, I mean the Dalals, the traffickers or recruitment agents, if you want to call them, that um, they, they are Bangladeshis themselves. And they're hired by these agencies to get these women. And they, of course, know the dynamics in rural village life. So they will have contacts within the village who will, you know, send them a text and say, oh, look at, you know, this woman, like say Fatima, like she's recently gone through a divorce. And so in Bangladesh, if you're living in a rural village, if you've gone through a divorce, it's very hard to get remarried. Mm -hmm. You know, it comes with a stigma. And a lot of the community will talk about you in negative ways. And what that means is if you're then at that exact time offered an amazing salary and you get to live abroad, so you don't need to deal with, you know, gossiping neighbors for like, say, a year or two, hell, you're going to take it. You're going to take that opportunity. And it, these dalals, these recruitment agents know exactly which women to target. You know, they're trained, they're experts at this, and they know how to exploit vulnerable women. And then they, at that exact time, they will knock on the door and they will ask, hey, listen, I have an amazing proposition for you. How about working in this amazing country? You get this amazing salary. You don't have to deal with your gossiping neighbors. Mm -hmm. And you can see how they'll get sucked into it. They'll, they'll take the offer. That's horrible. That's yeah. horrible. So the Kafala system is not just Lebanon. It's, it's throughout the Middle East region. Does the, does the system change in any ways, like significantly in different uh, countries and different areas, do you know? Uh, no, it's so the kafala system is really respected to the GCC countries, the, the Gulf Council, uh, Gulf countries, basically, and also Lebanon and uh, in Jordan as well. Um, so those are the sort of two exceptions outside of the Gulf, which are, um, but of course, it changes on in different countries. I mean, within Bangladesh, you have domestic workers, and that takes a whole different dynamic to, you know, domestic workers working in Lebanon, of course. But it's interesting to see how there are parallels. For instance, if you look at the history of domestic workers inside of Lebanon, um, you know, what you used to have was people from the poorer communities in villages would often, um, they, would, they would give off their, their daughters to well-off families. And in exchange, they would grow up in these families and be given an education and have a chance to mingle with the elite in the hope that eventually they could become socialized into the, into the elite. And I mean, that, there's many parallels with, uh, that you see in, in South Asia. I have relatives who have domestic workers working in their house. Right. For, for instance, at my grandma's house. And she helped so much when my grandma was ill. And we, you know, we gave her education as well. She also had a chance to go and study at school. And so you know, some families in South Asia would say, hey, this is the same in, in our country. We give them an education you know, that they perhaps, it's an opportunity that they wouldn't have had the chance to follow. Okay. But of course... There's so much more to it, you know, when you're working in Lebanon. There's the whole kafala system, which is the exploitation element to it. Right. And the lack and, of power yeah. in all this. Exactly, yeah. Is, is the kafala system part of the, the law system there? Um, or is it separate? I don't know how to speak about it from a legal perspective, to be honest. Okay. 
but essentially what happens is it's just the it's the employment system and so what happens is it does it's not protected under um sort of like it doesn't meet international legal standards by any means and what happened recently was the minister of labor in lebanon uh lamia yamim and she introduced a unified standard contract so that supposedly meets international labor standards but for instance you know many ngos are skeptical of this and journalists because there's no enforcement system there's no legal enforcement system so you can have a standard unified contract but if there's no one to go after employers who abuse their migrant workers it doesn't really mean anything just ink on paper how was your experience when you were there were you kind of treated differently from not uh, from domestic workers but from the lebanese community because you are uh, you you look bengali you are bengali mm. were you were, did you feel kind of uncomfortable there in any way yeah sure there was definitely i noticed it a lot <laughs> i i mean i was hanging out with at first when i moved there i was hanging out with a lot of uh you know expats um yeah. from from europe i mean that's a whole term to unpack on itself why if you're from europe you become an expat when you go to the middle east and not a migrant <laughs> yes but anyway the, so i was living with you know quote unquote like expats and um yeah it was definitely noticeable the way that I've heard they stories be, of people going in there and, and because of their skin color, they, they get treated uh, differently. Yeah. Like they're not allowed here, they're not allowed there. And then you're like, I'm not a domestic worker. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Did you get that experience? Yeah, yeah, I did. For instance, uh, you know, if you walk into a shop, you see like doors being held open for like, you know, like say my housemates, like white Europeans. And then say if I was like back getting something from the car and I arrived a little bit late, it's like, okay, closed door in my face. <laughs> The sort wow. of look that they give you is sort of like, what, like, what do you want here? But that wasn't that bad. The most obvious instances were perhaps once when I was running, um, and these two um, Lebanese security force guards, you know, sort of stopped me, and they they spoke to me in Arabic at first, and I have very bad Arabic, but I tried in my best to you know answer back to them, and they were like, hey, they asked me for my papers, and I said, why? Why do you want to look at my papers? They're like, no, we need to see your papers now, and I go, I don't carry my papers when I'm running. And then they sort of started like mocking my Arabic, which is fair enough. You know, that's irrespective of whether I'm brown or not. I think I deserve that. But then as soon as I started speaking in English, I go, listen, I'm sorry, I don't have my passport with me. I don't understand why you need to see it. Their sort of face lit up. They were like, oh my God, we're so sorry. They go, we're so sorry, sir. We just, you know, we just needed to check something. It's fine. You can go. And then I asked them again. I was like, no, but why did you want to see my papers? I don't need it whilst I'm jogging mm -hmm. in the Corniche. And they're like, no, no, nothing. There's no problem. You can go on, sir. Sorry, sorry. That's it. That's crazy. That's and then insane. other instances were like I was photographing in a refugee camp. I came back. I'm wearing obviously not the best clothes. Like I'm just wearing like my baggy trousers and like simple linen shirt. And then same thing. They they beckon me over to the street. You know, they gesture with a hand like, hey, come over here. I walk over to them and it's the same thing. Where are your papers? Not even like nothing. They just immediately, where are your papers? They ask to see this. Um, yeah, and there were a few other instances, but those are the ones that, that stand out. Yeah. That's crazy. These are these are people kind of working. What about like just your average Lebanese people? Do they do they even care to what they're seeing and how exploitive it is this Catholicism, or do they to them it's just kind of normalized? I'm sure there are people who care, but in general, mm -hmm. as a whole, as collectively. Do you think they want a reform or do you think they're okay with the things that the way they are already? Do, um, 
I, they are very aware of what is happening. Yes. I mean, I talk to taxi drivers and they know sort of shake their heads and say, Oh, haram, you know, like shame. Yeah. What's being done to them. But at the same time, you hear stories of, you know, them like fondling them, their passengers, you know, if they're, they're from like South Asia or if they're black. This is a very common occurrence. And I think they do want reform, but at the same time, it's just racism that's just so ingrained in the society. But then the younger generation are really, really pushing for a change mm-hmm. um, in sort of the discourse around racism. And some of those changes are, you know, coming into fruition. You've now finally seen like the Minister of Labour even acknowledging the fact that it is a racist, well, not that it's a racist system, but that true, it's causing a lot of inequality that we need to look at. And I mean, if that's a step forward then yeah it's being it's happening right now which is a good thing what changes do you think what cha- what needs how would you change this how would you reform this you know if you were if we were to start kind of taking steps how would you go about changing or fixing this system so a lot of it would stem from 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 teaching teaching in schools the the reality, the history, and the impact of racism, first of all. Mm-hmm. I mean, before you make any laws or changes, you need to change the mentality in people into understanding how, you know, race shouldn't shouldn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a different skin tone. It's basic stuff. And that needs to first take place within the school curriculum and within just the wider society itself. And there's still elements where a lot needs to be done, I think, in that sense. So that's where I would I would begin. Have you seen the movie Capernaum? Yeah, I have. I, I love that film. When I, I watched it, I, I was like, this is my project. This is what I want it to be like. <laughs> that was a sad movie. Very yeah, sad, sad movie. Yeah. That's probably the best uh, visual piece out there that you can see and watch to kind of get a better understanding of like what it is. Yeah. It, because I'm, I'm like, I've been so involved in this story. I often struggle with you know, trying to explain to someone who has no idea about this, the whole issue of kafala. I often struggle with where to begin because I've been just so involved in it. And I often assume things like, oh, they know, you know, the basics when actually they don't. And so I've learned that the best way to come to counter that is just to tell them, listen, watch the film Kafa now. I'm like, if you watch that, then come back to me and then we can have like mm-hmm. a longer discussion or like that. That's a very good starting point. So when that film came out, I was so glad. And it caused a huge amount of debate and discussion within Lebanon itself. What's there to debate? Very good. What's there to debate? It's <laughs> clear. It's clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I was researching Kafala system and I Google, I YouTubed it, and there's so many videos out there of like people being uh, domestic workers being abused by their employers, and it just it's crazy how these. There it's in the news and it's like kind of common thing and people are just kind of walking by or joining in to mm. to abusing these women. I didn't yeah. know it was like to that extent where people can just walk by and as two guys mm-hmm. are hitting this black woman and no one is doing anything. And I don't know what happens to the employers if they get arrested or not, but I don't think they get charged. I think it's kind of like a, hey, don't do that. And then and if the woman complains, from what I understand, if she were to complain to the cops, instead of the cops kind of arresting the abusers, they just go and send the woman off back home and she can't make money anymore. And then she's back home and everyone and they these employers just kind of hire a new a new person to abuse after that. Is that how it works? 
Absolutely. Yeah, you nailed it describing it. That's exactly what happens. The police who be called in, they often end up, as you said, arresting <laughs> arresting the woman herself. It's it's just bizarre, the whole system. But that is, yeah, that's exactly what happens. And they in the end, if there is too much trouble, the family sort of shrugs its shoulder and it's like, you know what? We can't be bothered to deal with this trouble. We'll just hire someone else. That's I, it. The last episode I did was on tea plantations and how the British would hire these women and then get them, trick them into these contracts and then they can't quit. And if they quit, they get arrested and they're, and this gives the power to the tea plantation owner and that, and they can do whatever they want to these tea workers. And the structure is so, it's pretty much the same thing as the structure now. And it's crazy how that, like this, how history kind of repeats itself, just different in a different region. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just crazy to see how <laughs> these structures kind of just keep coming back. Yeah, it's these systems of manipulation and exploitation. That when, when you start to analyze them, they all have the same common traits. And it's just this idea that it's a cyclical thing, that you can't really escape it because you'll then be dragged into it like another way. And that's all because of the power dynamics. That's because if the authorities in any way enable the system to perpetuate, then it's a self-perpetuating system. It will constantly keep going in this cycle. And yeah. anyone who, until the authorities and the officials, the government decide to change laws and enact them, then nothing will change. And there's a whole bunch to how you be begin to even change the dynamics there. And it all starts with a debate and a discussion within the people themselves to change the mentality and to understand, first of all, and recognize the problem, that there is a problem in the first place. Yeah. What, what is crazy with these structures, you know, slavery, indentured laborers, tea plantations, there's always this kind of divide between races too. It's never their own people. It's always, and this Lebanon and the Catholicism, it's always, there's a, there has to be kind of a divide between the employer and the employee or the master and the slave. And there's always this kind of difference in race between the two people, this otherism that I guess I didn't really notice before, but that plays a big part in all this because I don't think they would be able to do this to their own people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to exploit people, I mean, at its core, it's completely dehumanizing the yes, fact that you yes. can you can treat people uh, so badly. You can beat them up. You can literally, people are being, you know, talk to women who have been literally chained. They were like kept in the, one, one woman I worked with, she described to me how she was literally chained by her employers into because they had an apartment that was below them mm -hmm. they said sort of when she first joined they said oh this is your apartment this is yours you can use it however you wish and of course she was very excited and then when she refused to give sexual services to her employer then you know things started to really change and like he started to abuse her he started to ref uh, pay her less money than he had initially promised and like this is all in the not with you know within the knowledge of the wife she knew what was happening she just didn't say anything the wife and then eventually she described to me how she was chained up into the kitchen in the downstairs apartment. And then in the morning he would come down and unlock her. And then, you know, she'd carry on doing her cleaning and stuff until eventually she managed to like find a phone. She bought a phone without her employers knowing because they would often check her apartment and her clothes. She managed to hide it. And then she contacted an NGO who, who helped her escape from that house. How does an NGO help uh, someone escape? Um, so a part of it is getting in touch with, with the embassy, getting their documents. Uh, but before any of that takes place, it's first, the first step is to take them to a safe place, to organize a way 
like they might tell you okay tomorrow like i have a day off um or between these hours my employers aren't home this is my address where i'm at come and meet me downstairs and then we'll you'll you know the ngos will organize a sort of taxi or something they'll be there they'll wait for them they'll collect them and they'll drive them to a safe house there are a lot of safe houses that these ngos run and shelters um which are kept you know very secret and anyone wishing to escape gets kept inside there whilst you know the rest of the administration stuff happens and that's acquiring the emergency travel documents and negotiating flight tickets etc or seeking medical attention is often the case does the government help the Lebanese does the Lebanese government help the NGOs <laughs> absolutely not no not at all no not at all i mean you you will you will get some kind of cooperation perhaps you might get one sympathetic person from from general security who i've heard you know some injured people tell me that you know they'll be like a sort of insider and any kind of documentation they might be a bit sympathetic so they'll be able to dig through some documents and provide them yeah to the injured but it basically if you are one of those sympathetic officials you have to keep it dead quiet and that's why even the ngos who work with migrant workers keep their work top secret because they literally have general security in lebanon on their tails you know why? trying to why is the, why is working. lebanese why are they seen as an enemy to the lebanese government because over the recent few years they've been very successful in getting international media attention to so, so what's just, happening with them so basically the lebanese government doesn't like their name being tarnished and they would rather exactly. rather keep that protected than to help ngos help people so oh that's it and that's what it it's, it's also i mean the fact that the the main reason is it comes down to money it's very very profitable people are one of the most valuable commodities i mean talk to any, a human trafficker and he'll tell you how much profit he's making they make a lot of money from transporting people illegally say from you know rural bangladesh to come and help i mean think of the profit margin if you know how much migrant workers are getting paid which is like peanuts in transporting them as human labor you get you get a huge cut of money from that and of course that goes into i'm sure embassy pockets too this is photographer i follow who's been doing you know amazing work sadly she seemed to arrive in beirut just at the time that i left so i never met her but i've been following her work uh her name is uh Aline Deschamps and she she wrote this amazing post yesterday and i feel like i should just read it out to to understand sort of what these migrant workers go through um should i read it out sure so she says okay last post of the day but for the ones who don't believe it's real or that these women's stories of abuse are completely exaggerated you could not be more wrong then she goes on to say from the 8 months i've been following lucy who's um a sierra leonean woman i still learn new horrifying facts every time we have an exchange for the last 24 hours that i spent with them on their last day before they were repatriated by an ngo one girl got hit on the head by a man on a motorbike whilst we were working in sabra market as a palestinian refugee market they were laughing and then they drove away when uh, when we were falling asleep at 11 pm one neighbor breached into the house as if he had the right to breach into the girl's apartment even though we were in bed and thus half naked just because they were black and migrant workers they are paying their rent so why are they treated as second class citizens when we walked later on at 3 a.m. to reach the bus to the airport um she says men harassed them even on the way they insulted them they tried to sexually abuse them on the street they put their hands on their buttocks as if to, as if that was their property the girl stopped me that's aline 
photojournalist from screaming because they were afraid that it would bring even more trouble and attention. So we just continued walking in silence in what seemed to be an endless walk into hell. And this all happened within the last 24 hours in Lebanon. But can you imagine living in such fear and humiliation every single day? That's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> How hard is it to get these uh, domestic workers back home for the NGOs? Is there, I mean, isn't it just a buying a flight ticket and just sending them home? Or is there a whole process to this? Yeah, there's, there's often a whole process. So right now with COVID, it's a case of getting their PCR test done, making sure that they've got that officially stamped. You then have to try and go to the embassy, get their emergency travel documents because many of them don't have their passports. Once you've done that, you then have to go and ensure that the embassy has put them on a list for special repatriation flights. Now, the, they have to go on these special flights, A, because ticket uh, prices are now ridiculously expensive. I'm talking like you know, $700, $800, like just to go one way from Beirut to say Sri Lanka. They never used to be that expensive. And they're now that kind of price. And so ideally, it's the responsibility of the embassy to pay for those tickets, but of course they don't. And so the NGO then has to raise enough funds just to send, say, one migrant worker, Sri Lankan worker, back home, pay $600, $700 just for her, uh, having got her documentation, having got her uh, you know, COVID-19 test, having checked with the embassy that she's registered on the flight. And even then, if general security at the airport, say, you know, she's been registered as someone who's run away from her home and not been given permission to leave. That could then make them say, no, you're still not allowed to board. You have to stay. Um, you're not allowed to board the flight. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of processes. <laughs> terrible, terrible. I've noticed that there are a lot of protesting happening from domestic workers. They would come kind of mobilize together and they would protest. Does that make any impact? Because I think if they were to try to make a union within each other, within themselves, that could lead to arrest because I don't think they're even allowed to kind of have like of a, like any kind of like organization to protest. Yeah, that's right. There's not they're not allowed to unionize. Yeah. Unionize. And there were attempts. They were there were attempts to form a union a few years back and that got crushed pretty harshly. I mean, the it was a Nepali worker and I think two Sri Lankans. I don't know. But basically the the workers who were in charge of organizing that, they got ousted from Lebanon. They got kicked out of Lebanon and not allowed back. So that goes to show how harshly they you know, they'll clamp down on this. But what you do have is you have NGOs who are working together and um, they work very closely together and they coordinate amongst themselves um, information about, you know, how many migrant workers they have, any special cases they have, and they work together to get them out. Um, and there's a very close knit system and one that's quite effective at doing it quite discreetly, um, completely. And like, aside from the authorities being involved. Do you have any plans on releasing a book with your photographs? Because they're really beautiful. Thank you. I haven't. Yeah, I, I sent you a little PDF. So I saw it. It was really you nice. You could have a. Yeah, and I appreciate the kind words. I haven't actually shown it to many people. Well, um, I was. I, my intention was, you know, I thought very naively, like I could finish this. This is a project because I'm living there for like two years. I could finish it and publish it somewhere. But then it just turned into this huge, massive thing. I didn't realize how bad Kafala was. And so I haven't published it anywhere. I've sort of kept it and I'm working on, I want to make it a book, mm -hmm. but in order to do that, I need to raise funding for it. Um, and there's just not a lot of money going around in photojournalism right now for grants. And the few that are, they sort of, 
migrant worker issues aren't viewed as very, uh, you know, sexy to sort of cover with a grant. There are other issues that they'd rather look at. I would but, love to see that book out. And thank I want you. people to read that. I, I really appreciate that. There's just so much more that I want to cover. I want to make it more of an investigative project. Um, and I decided that about, you know, quite a few months ago. I decided, and by that, I mean, I want to incorporate, like I said, I want to go to Bangladeshi rural village and I want right. to talk to a woman who's thinking of heading out. I want to talk to one who's just come back. I want to talk to, I'm in touch with a few of the Dalals themselves, the people who recruit them into mm -hmm. the agencies. And I want to just, you know, record like a video interview with them. So I want, and I also want to do things like, you know, make it a multimedia piece, include into the book, like scans of their flight tickets, scans of their family photos from back home, um, voice notes from them. You can't put it in a book, but you know, no. on, on the website. But um, yeah, I just want to make it this, it's turning into like this huge thing and it's going to take a few years, I think, to do. Yeah, yeah to definitely. do it justice at least. <laughs> what, are, what are these recruiters like as people? Are they like douchey or are they like, they're just kind of stuck in this system too and they're just trying to survive? You know what? It's kind of like when, okay, I was going to say it's kind of like when you talk to a drug dealer, but you, the average person probably hasn't been to a drug. But what I mean by that is that they view it in a very, uh, it's a sort of business transactional kind of perspective. They're like, listen, I know it's morally wrong, blah, 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 but you know, there's a demand for it. I have to pay you know, I've got bills to pay, this kind of attitude. And they're very clinical about it. Of course, you have to be if you, if you want to detach yourself from the reality of what you're doing, which is transporting people illegally. Um, and they speak of it in a very, yeah, a very clinical way. They're like, okay, this month I'm going to move, you know, say 100 people. Next month it's going to be 175 people. Um, because of these immigration controls, we need to then ship them to this country where I'm talking to this person who can then, for instance, Nepal once banned migrant workers traveling from there to Lebanon. So they got around it by then transporting them to across the border to India. And then they would just fly. They'd be transported to another major international airport in India by bus, very treacherous journey mm -hmm. down mountains. And then from India, they would then fly into Lebanon. So they'd find a way around it. It's just like when you try and ban refugees, you know, coming from one country, they'll just, you're just pushing them to go a longer, more dangerous route. And then yeah. coming from there. Not a, it's like a band-aid solution. What's crazy is that in Lebanon, like there are a lot of people who are who need jobs. I mean, there are Lebanese citizens out there in Lebanon who are struggling to find work, who are trying to find a job, and I guess they they could use that work too. But I guess they won't. I guess the rates, the salary that they they're going to be asking for is a lot more than the domestic workers. So even they won't get hired either. So it's kind of a, everything is connected, I guess. Yeah, it's, I've, I feel like this entire the talk, I've just been talking badly about. <laughs> yeah, say something nice about Lebanon. About, the, about Lebanese people. And I, I feel so bad because I've been living there for two years. And honestly, it's, it, is, it just deserves so much more attention and respect like that it gets from the Western press because the people are honestly so hospitable. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I am talking about one tiny facet you know, that is negative about the culture and the country that needs to change. But I mean, you know, to the average Lebanese person, they'll tell you, yeah, it does need to change. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, Lebanese people are absolutely lovely. And honestly, they've gone through so much. And this, all that's happened in the last year, they just do not deserve. It's a country that is recovering from, you know, 15 year civil war mm -hmm. ended in 1990. It used to be, you know, a, a glitzy, they called it, you know, the Paris of the Middle East. 
but like people even from the west would go and visit because it was such a buzzing place to be and then the war happened and it spent all this time trying to recover its reputation and then now just in the events of what's happened in just the past year it's completely undone that reputation that it was trying to to regain and it's so sad they don't deserve that and everyone says you know lebanese people are resilient and it's true they are but you also have to say that you know like it's it's wrong to just keep calling them resilient like it's just simply they don't deserve to be going through the 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 stuff that they have with their corrupt government in place and the explosions was kind of like icing on the cake that was horrible mm-hmm. that was just like one you bad know, thing it was like that. a it really was like a pressure cooker building up since last october and it's just so in a tragic kind of sense like fitting that of course it was a massive you know the largest recorded man-made explosion to happen to be recorded mm-hmm. happened that culminated in everything it was so Symbolic. fitting that it was that and that it arrived and that it arrived in the port and many people don't know this but the port itself in Lebanon is known as like the secretive place you know like a taxi driver once described it to me and a few of my Lebanese friends is like you know like a cave like Ali Baba's kind of cave like they don't even know what goes on inside of there they just know that you know a lot of like Hezbollah have transported weapons and ammunition over there they don't quite know a lot of illegal transactions happen in the port it's literally walled and it's like quite a secretive area and then the fact that the and it's knowing that the government you know has a lot of money inside there as well and the fact that the explosion that's at the heart of Beirut geographically it's located in the middle of Beirut but like down south obviously towards the ocean and it's quite ironic that you know of all places that the explosion would occur it was in this place it's very yeah. symbolic yeah it is in a very sad way yeah if people want to help and or they want to donate is there any organizations? Is there anything you can recommend? Yeah, there are. There are a lot of organizations working. I've been working very closely with a few NGOs covering. Uh, do you mean the explosion or the domestic workers? I'll, I'll talk about both. So basically, uh, if you want to help with the explosion, um, excellent people are. You know, the Lebanese Red Cross. They're doing amazing work. There's also an organization called Anera. That's A N E R A. And they do they were doing things such as like making food kitchens to help people who don't have enough food or the kitchens have been damaged they don't have enough uh, money to to buy you know groceries things like that they've also been helping like children with baby food um sanitary stuff for women as well they've been providing a lot of those um yeah so those are two good organizations for the blast but for migrant workers there's also um there's this excellent organization uh, who I did a lot of work with in Lebanon called uh, This is Lebanon. They really are doing a lot of work on the ground, helping get migrant workers back home. They've recently helped a bunch of Sri Lankans go home. They've helped a bunch of uh, Kenyan and Sri Lankan, uh, sorry, Sierra Leonean women as well go back. And they're, they're very on the ground and they have a sort of gloves off approach. If you go on their website, um, they're sort of not afraid to name and shame their abusers. They literally post up you know, videos and audio tapes from WhatsApp um, of the abusers, you know, shouting and like swearing at their migrant workers. And then they just post them on Facebook and then they tag all of their friends of these abusers and say, are you aware that, you know, this person is doing this? And they literally name and shame them. And it's given them, it's given the authorities such a nightmare. um, They must have a lot of enemies. They have a lot of enemies, yeah. But at the same time, it shows that they're doing great work, at least in my book. (laughs) That's very brave of them.
Yeah. And yeah. there's other organizations like Enyelenga. Uh, that's spelled like um, E-N-G-A, L-E-N-G-A. And they help, um, it's run by migrant domestic workers and they help migrant workers get back home too. Um, and then stuff like um, Kafa, K-A-F-A. They do a lot of anti-racism stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also launch a lot of reports and they're in touch with sort of Human Rights Watch and uh, sort of bigger international media organizations about stuff like statistics and figures, um, the more sort of formal side of that. Yeah. Is it is it true? I've heard this, but I don't know if it's true. You know how like people buy cars as like status to show off their status? You know, I have a Mercedes, I have a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Is it true that they do the same thing with domestic workers, but with nationalities? Like I have a Filipino domestic worker, look at me, I'm a big shot. And, and you have, you know, so depending on the race of the domestic worker, it kind of brings up their status too. Do they use that as a status showing thing? Yeah, I don't know the extent of that, but I know that that is a thing. I spoke to quite a lot of people who sort of confirmed and they said, yeah, it's absolutely a thing. So for instance, Filipinos are considered the most, I hate to say it, but like, you know, you know, valuable and top. Why? Yeah. Because they speak English. They, they're taught English to a good level uh, in their school education. And so that they can communicate perfectly well. Um, or at least, you know, compared to like, say, at the bottom of the, the chain uh, is, is the Bangladeshi workers. So Bangladeshi workers would be much cheaper than a Filipino worker. And so, yeah, if you're rich, you can afford, you know, five, six Filipino maids. And they have outfits as well. You go to, you see stores, by the way, in the street, which are full of like actual maid uniforms. And they walk around Beirut wearing this. I'm not joking. It's like actual maid uniforms, like the French kind of thing with like the little dustbuster kind of thing. You're talking about that. Exactly that. Are you serious? Yeah. They have Walking that. around like mini, mini dogs in like, you know, those tiny little, what do they call them? Like chihuahuas. Yeah. Walking around Beirut. Walk, we're just walk, walking around in their, in their maid outfits. They have outfits that they have to wear. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's hard to process. Yeah. That's insane. And if people want to find you and your work, what can they do? Where can they go? <laughs> yeah. I'm very, well, I wouldn't say very, but you can find me on Instagram at Adib Chow, A-D-I-B-C-H-O-W. And I also have a website, www.adibphotography.com. So you can find my stuff there. But the the migrant work stuff, if you want to find it, you have to look at my Instagram because I haven't put it up yet on my website. As I said, I'm waiting for, you know, more material. I wanted to find, like, whenever I try to write about a topic and I need photographs, I always try to find photographs of the the photographer has to be part of that community. Um, I don't want like a white Western photographer to take photos of like Kashmir. I want a Kashmiri to take photos of Kashmir. So hmm. to find you taking photos of like migrant workers is like, like yeah. a unicorn. It's like, it's, <laughs> it's so rare. So how did the Kafala system come about? So basically what happened in the sort of 1950s and the sixties, a lot of the Arab labor in the region, it consisted of uh, Egyptian, Palestinian, Lebanese and Yemeni workers, and they were all part of the Gulf workforce. So what happened was around 1948, you had the creation of the state of Israel. And so that meant a lot of Palestinian migrants uh, sort of greatly increased in numbers. And the Palestinian refugees were given direct employment preference by you know countries such as Saudi Arabia. Um, and then what happened was sort of towards the 70s, you saw a lot of um, Gulf states being sympathetic with Arab nationalism and the Palestinian cause. 
And around that same time, a lot of Shia population were being radicalized by the Iranian Revolution in 1979. And so these workers also made attempts to settle down with their families because they were fleeing the conflict. And with that uh, settlement also came a greater demand for um, you know, increase in labor rights and human rights and treatment. So what that essentially meant was that they became more expensive. So around that time, conveniently, South Asia was going through a lot of changes. I mean, around the 70s. So for instance, Bangladeshi, the Bangladeshi independence war, that was in 1971, gained independence. So there's a lot of cheap migration available there. As well as Sri Lanka in the 70s, you had a lot of um, conflict going on between uh, the, ten the Tamils. And so those tensions would eventually you know, culminate into a full-blown civil war in, in Sri yeah. Lanka. So you also had migration from there. And that's when you started to see a lot of migration from South Asia come into the Gulf countries and Lebanon. And it, it all sort of began from there. The soccer stadium, the football stadium, Qatar FIFA. Mm. That also is the same concept, right? In a sense, to an extent, kafala system. They're hiring domestic work. Uh, they're hiring workers, construction workers from South Asian countries, and then bringing them in and then doing the engineering work and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the same. It's the same sort of system, and they they got in a lot of trouble for it. Like a lot of the international media spotlight focused yes. on them. But they said that they would abolish kafala by I think it's in they call it like their twenty thirty plan. Um, and they've actually taken steps towards that. They've agreed on giving them a minimum wage. And I mean, if you think that that's like some kind of a revolutionary thing, it goes to show how bad the kafala system is in the area. The fact that they've given them a minimum wage and they think that that's, you know, a great amount of progression. I don't think the kafala system can be abolished because money. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I guess it just gets replaced by another structure. And it just keeps going on like that, you know, just like American, like slavery in America kind of gets replaced with like this kind of prison complex. I think I'm a bit more optimistic in the sense that I think until it becomes economic or you find an alternative way to make it economically viable or unviable, I guess, in that sense, like, you know, bringing people in, then then things will start to change. Like, uh, how to explain? Uh, for instance, if you... Yeah, no, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically, I'm optimistic. I think it can change. Um, I'm there is pessimistic. <laughs> and I don't know if it'll change to that extent where it could, you know, I don't know. I guess the one thing I would want, at least if I'm being practical, is at least let them yeah. have their passports because that yeah. kind of changes the game a lot. Yeah. I, I guess where I was trying to go at and before I forgot was I think – you know, with these Gulf countries sort of coming out of their dependency on oil as the main source of income, they have to interact with, you know, different countries and they have to bring in workers from abroad and not just like migrant labor, you know, to do domestic work. And with that reaching out to the broader world comes with it, comes with it the responsibility to abide by international, you know, regulations for labor. And so with that, that's why you're starting to see a change in Qatar. Of, uh, of abolishing the system. They're like, okay, we need to now implement these rules and regulations if we are gonna get migrant, you know, foreigners coming in and working the country. And so as that happens, as it moves away from an oil, um, you know, oil-based economy, they're gonna to have to sort of relax, so to speak, their laws, I think. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Awesome. I'm gonna probably post this.